Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic, after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Bonjour, Gregor. Ready for season three? Oh boy, season three. Um, I think so. How about you, Brad? Well, I, you know, I, I kind of go through these cleaning frenzies every so often. So I've been going through and just mm-hmm. getting rid of stuff, you know, kind of decluttering. And my New Year's resolution is just let go of some of this stuff because there's just stuff every place. So right now I'm working on saying uh, thank you and goodbye to things that I am just, it's leaving. It sounds like someone has been reading Marie Kondo, perhaps over the holidays. Um, I like that idea of decluttering. Uh, So tell me uh, one thing maybe that you said thank you to and said goodbye to. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that whole uh, art of tidying up kind of thing that I was reading. But so what did I say goodbye to? Well, you might remember from from maybe our days in the field and, and hunting. I have I had a pair of uh, rubber boots that oh you know they seen better days. Oh. And um, so it wasn't more of a thank you and goodbye. It was more of it, it's it's okay to let it go. You know, kind of like <laughs> they were they've been in hospice for a while, so they. Those- I let them go. So they're patches they're a, upon patches does not describe that in the least. So they're in, they're in a better place now. Just, so I, I think it's going to be good. Yeah. That's a good thing. You let go. Yeah. And, but you know, I also ran across, this is kind of cool. I, so I'm cleaning behind the desk and man, I found a ton of stuff, but, but I found an interesting article um, that I think you'd be really interested in. You know, Brad, cleaning behind your desk can be a very dangerous undertaking. Um, So I'm not (laughs) sure I want to ask what you even found back there. Well, let's, oh, what did I find back there? I found, you remember the eclipse? I found like a pair of those disposable (laughs) glasses. They slipped off my, they slipped back there. Um, God, uh, some old dog toys that get thrown around, uh, a broken clinometer, a zip disc. There were just a bunch of stuff. Wait, a zip disc? What the heck's that? That sounds like something from the 1980s in my well, um, our Atari video game. It was from the 90s. I'll give it that. But <laughs> people might have to look it up, and and I'm not even sure what it is because it's not labeled. But uh, but it, it will. We'll see what happens. But it's interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad you cleaned out behind that desk. So yeah, I was I was worried about that. Yeah, it, but you know that article I mentioned. It was really interesting. There was a part in there, uh, listen to this. It said, one of the principal causes why forestry is still so backward is the fact that the forester who practices much writes little and the forester who writes much practices little. Often a forester's best experiences die with them. I found that really sad, but isn't it true? Yeah, that is kind of sad, but it definitely rings true for sure. And by the way, that's a really interesting quote. Who wrote that? See now, okay, this is the wild part. Um, this was written by a guy named Heinrich Kata. So it's a German forester in 1817. Hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, it's like things don't change. Yeah. 
that is interesting. I, I must admit it's a little bit depressing, but uh, somewhat interesting. But I'd rather not be depressed, Brad. I'm actually excited because today we're talking with Dr. Susan Stout, recently retired research forester and project leader from the U.S. Forest Service's Northern Research Station. And if you're familiar with Susan's research, which I know you are, you know that she must have taken Heinrich's words to heart because Dr. Stout is a pioneer in developing collaborative research that brings together the field foresters and the scientists. And I know it's been work that's had a big impact on our Eastern hardwood silviculture. So we should tell our listeners, hang on, this is gonna be a good one. Uh, Susan Stout, welcome to Silvacast. Yeah, welcome, Susan. Well, thanks a lot. I'm really honored and pleased to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Susan, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your career. How did you get into forestry? Well, my dad was a forester and later a professor of silviculture, so I spent a lot of time in the woods as a child and felt comfortable there. And later, I actually got interested first in international forestry. And I thought I was going to learn forestry to help Africans have closer firewood to their homes. Um, And then serendipity, I ended up in northwestern Pennsylvania with the U.S. Forest Service Research Lab there instead. It always amazes me how many people that come on and we ask that question of refer back to their childhood and somebody who took them into the woods. Yeah. That's always amazes me. It's almost everybody. Yeah. And and I, I'm just trying to imagine like growing up the, with your dad as a silviculture professor, that had to be kind of interesting (laughs) too. Well, obviously, I mean, the silviculture professor stuff happened when I was a teenager and the world revolved around me, right? So (laughs) I didn't necessarily know what that was till I became a forester. (laughs) You weren't like conversing with dad about stocking charts over the supper. (laughs) No, but I will tell you, and this is a true story, that um, one of my brothers got married the summer before I started forestry school. And I, I already knew in some way that I was going to work on relative density that we're going to talk about later. My father picked me up at the airport for the wedding and we went to a diner and he drew stocking charts on napkins for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's like a fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like a late night for us, Greg. Yeah, exactly. Staring at a stocking chart. A lot of your career has been spent looking at issues which we deal with every day in the field. Um, who are, and, and sometimes we kind of think back, like we were talking about how we get involved in forestry, but then there are all those people who really make an influence on us. So who were some of those people that really, like, really made an impression on you as a young forester? Well, surely Ralph Nyland, who was my master's major professor and with whom I stayed professionally involved, really throughout my career um, was a really important influence. And part of the reason I ended up in Northwestern Pennsylvania is that the year before I started forestry school, Dave Marquis, who was the project leader at the unit in Warren and was also a really 
marvelous silviculturist had taken a semester, a sabbatical and taught at SUNY. So I didn't cross paths with him there, but he had left behind the money that funded my master's work. And then it turned out they were looking for a forester. And this was at a time when women were extremely unusual in hmm. forestry. And But at the same time, the Forest Service was really under pressure to find and support women in science and in the management professions as well. And so Dave called back to SUNY and Ralph and John Berglund, who was the dean of the forestry school, both suggested me. And that was the way I ended up in Warren. And really working with Dave for a decade was really life-shaping. And of course, part of that was silviculture, but he was also an incredible natural leader and had a really deep commitment to doing research that got got to people in the field and changed the way they they did their work. And I think, I hope it wasn't something I needed to learn, but I'm not sure it's something that all scientists understand. Dave exemplified real respect for field foresters and a, a constant sense that Yes, we had things we could teach them as scientists, but we really needed to understand that we could learn a lot from field foresters too. And those are all things I learned from Dave. Yeah, Dave put out some amazing publications. I know that I refer back to um, his material quite a lot. So right. that's a... And it's interesting to hear you say that too, Susan, because it. I've always thought when you read like some of the you read some of the work that was done then and you read some of the work that you see kind of now that there's like a different voice. Like it, it really did feel collaborative or, or meant to be able to reach people. Um, and I've, I've liked, even there was a, I can't remember, there was a paper by Ben Roach and just the way he wrote that was like so easy to access. And you're like, I know exactly what he's talking about versus other papers you read and go, I think I understand what they said. So Ben's, I never met Ben. Ben passed away far too young. He actually had the heart attack that eventually caused his death on the thinning plots on the Kane Experimental Forest. Mm, mm. And on some level, it was his position that I moved into, but it wasn't quite linear. But, but people told me that he, when he was going to give a talk, he worked for hours choosing the jokes that made his point <laughs> yeah. and practiced and practiced and practiced. And I think it shows in things like maybe one of his most important things is that Upland Oak Guide yeah. that he wrote with Sam Gingrich. But if you read that, it's so accessible, just as you said. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Brad, maybe that's our our problem. We need to practice our jokes more. <laughs> Think about these more carefully. <laughs> yeah. Instead of going, oh, should I have said that? Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. That didn't go over right at all. But um, well, we'll, that's, we'll work on that. So, Susan, your career, it spans a lot of different topics and projects you were involved in. And so we can't cover all of those, unfortunately. And so Brad and I were trying to boil this down to like, what did we think was really interesting and things um, that we th thought really influenced the work that foresters do in the field. And so let's talk about some of those issues. 
And the first one, Brad, I know is a favorite of yours. So um, I'm going to let you introduce that. Yeah. And so I've, Greg knows me. So I'm like the relative density geek. I just love it. And I think, you know, we oftentimes don't use it. It's kind of an addiction for him. So I don't. Well, it isn't, but it's, it's just really cool to think about. Right. And well, that's what I say. Right. And then Greg has a different, you know, he talks me off of that, uh, you know, geeking out too far on it, but, uh, but you know, and I love them, but we, but a lot of times we don't use them for lots of reasons. And that's why I think I kind of really get into it. Cause I see this utility in the tool and then, and then part of it, you know, and then we don't see them used. And, and one reason I guess, and I get it, like people don't use stocking charts in some ways is because sometimes we don't have them available for each of the cover types that we're looking at. And so we go to a stand and we don't have it. And we just go back to the old ways of doing things where there's a standard BA we thin to, or we, we do other things. And so part of your work, and this was what really fascinated me. And maybe that I think might be one of the first times I looked at your work was that you worked on another way to estimate relative density. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I'm going to start though, by saying, I think the other reason that, um, people don't use relative density is you have to learn to see it. And even if you understand why you should learn to see it in the woods, it's so easy to get distracted by basal area because basal area is just there. And you know, you it's, we say, don't use your thumb. You've got to really use a prism. Your thumb's not precise enough, but we also all know that everybody swings a thumb every (laughs) now and then. And, And that's so accessible. So the first work I did was using a technique called tree area ratio. But but let me go back to why I have kind of the same passion that Brad does for relative density. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) And it is it is is sort of geeky, but it's it's really part of why forestry is so cool. So the idea that a particular acre can grow a certain amount of wood and that some species that that upper limit on how much it can grow is high and other species it's lower depending on the growing space the species needs but you can use this concept that there's a top and that it goes from a a, well it actually starts with a large number of small trees and a low basal area and has a really predictable up to the left curvy shape on a stock. Every stocking chart has that curvy shape up to a high basal area with a low number of trees. But what you're really seeing there is the balance of how much, where wood is on that acre. The little trees are dying to give the big, the successful big trees more growing space. And so tree area ratio was an effort to look in multi-species stands where you have sort of a line for sugar maple crossed with a line for black cherry crossed with a line for um, red maple and some birches. And, you know, how do you figure out what the top is for that mix of species? And, And Ben Roach had actually started the work that I ended up, I guess, carrying to the next step he had written this guide where the proportion of the stand in cherry created all these different maximum density lines. 
but even in the footnotes for, that us geeks read on that publication, it said, really, there probably ought to be another set of lines, depending on how much red maple there is. Yeah. Well, computers were starting to be inevitable. And so could we develop a tool that, yeah, Forrester couldn't carry around all those factors in his or her head, but where each species conceptually had its own line. And my work built on bands and there were really just three equations. But the thing I really wanted to talk about today is that more recently, FIA, but especially Mark Ducey at the University of New Hampshire, had this idea that maybe the specific density of wood explained what how, the relationship among those lines by species. And so he and his students have developed this method of calculating relative density based on in every single individual species having its own equation. And those are related to the specific density of the wood, which really goes back to that idea that that acre wants to grow an, a certain amount of wood. I don't know if that's too confusing. That's really yeah. interesting. Brad and I have been talking about this subject because for us, like wood-specific gravity, we are trying to wrap our heads around. Why is that related to the tree areas and how many trees can be on an acre of land um so we're still trying to figure that one out but it's, yeah. i'm glad to hear you're saying that that is a a good methodology i'll have to learn more yeah <laughs> well anyway it's something that i i stayed interested in for a long time yeah and, and, and they're I'm still, still interested in yeah and i think and and they're still working on that like they haven't published or have they published yet like all the for the different species the different the the values that would go with those i looked up today there is like a a 2010 publication yeah. maybe that introduced the concept but whether there's a a lit i've been looking lately at a 2018 paper of theirs where they use that to apply some decision rules to fia data to decide what harvests were sustainable and which ones weren't and so they must have had a complete species list internal to that working, but whether they've actually published it or not, I don't know. I know, uh, at least with tree area ratio, Brad and I have used that. And now with computer systems and software like NED that we might talk about a little bit, it's very easy to kind of calculate that on a tree level for these, as you said, these mixed stands that we just can't find a stocking chart that really logically fits it. Right. Right. And and people tell me that Ben could Ben Roach could walk into a stand and guess the relative density within three or four percent consistently. I'm not sure I ever got that good, but I think I think foresters should get over their block. Yeah. <laughs> and learn to really think species composition. One of the things that we always talked about in the training session just to help people understand why it might be worthwhile to learn this was that if a, a pure stand of cherry with 10 inch trees in it or an average 10 inch diameter at full stocking or at 100% relative density might have 180 square feet mm -hmm. and a pure sugar maple stand with the same size of trees 
also fully stocked 100% relative density would have 120 square feet. And so if any, you know, in a, in a forest where those two species are mixing all the time in widely varying percentages, how can you use basal area to set a thinning target? You just really can't. Hmm, right. Yeah. No, I think that's really good. It, and, it, you know, it's, it's the one thing I've always wondered about, Susan, is, you know, the nice thing about the chart is that it's really easy to see your target. So you can see that BA target. So how do you do it? If, you, if you're in a stand, say you, you do a calculation and you find out you're at 85% relative density and you want to drop it to 60, how do you actually define or find out what that level is? What does that mean as far as translating to basal area? So the way, so, so two things, you're right. It, it, these, this is not a visual answer. What Silva does is assume that you're going to apply the thinning equally across all species, which is not necessarily true, but it allows it to suggest what proportion of each size class should be removed. And our prescriptions for thinnings in particular tend to be partial crown thinnings, but mostly thin from below. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a projected structure. And if you treat each size class consistently across species, then Silva can say remove three out of five poles, two out of five small saw timber, and one out of three large saw timber or whatever the right ratio is. But it's really based on um, the treat the the amount of relative density that you're subtracting sort of as a fraction of each size class. Yeah. That actually, that discussion of Silva is a great transition because, because that we came to uh, relative density and that calculation. I know Greg and I probably came through Ned, um, but you were one of the, like one of the early people in Silva and, and you recognized, I think that, this was one of those elements, right? Relative density is one of those things that we need in making sound management decisions. But there were lots of other things that you could package into this kind of uh, a system to kind of standardize or kind of bring like a, a common set of terms that foresters could use and it's uh, a common set of, of management practices too. So, so maybe backing up a little bit. So we've mentioned Silva. What is Silva? Okay, I, I think people who know Silva will, ex well, people who know Silva and don't know me well may expect me to say that Silva is a computer program that provides decision support. I think Silva is an organized framework uh, supporting quantitative silviculture and ecology. It packages research results and prior knowledge into a framework that can help a forester, it's really not identify because foresters are, are incredibly smart, observant people. And they kind of know where a stand is, but by having this package that includes relative density, stocking of um, re regeneration, stocking of interfering plants, um, structure, stage of stand development, species composition, having all of that integrated into a solid framework that, and then 
ensures that they sort of check all the boxes as they think about their prescription. They don't get distracted by the fact that there's great timber. They really need to understand, is the stand overstocked, understocked? Is this the right moment for a partial cut? Is it time for a regeneration harvest? And Silva is really the the intellectual package, the framework that puts all of that together. Sort of the vehicle for creating that framework was that you really have to know a little bit of history, right? So the team that put Silva together had tremendous support from practicing foresters right from the beginning, because in the area where Silva developed, there had been this serious problem, regeneration problem, that foresters needed some help to solve. And so they had gone to their Congress people, they lobbied to bring more science to the table. And so the scientists knew that they were in debt to the practicing foresters. So they wanted to be sure to deliver research results in a way that would help foresters solve their problem and succeed moving forward. And so they developed in partnership with this wonderful extension forester from Penn State named Sandy Cochran, the idea of training sessions. So rather than just giving one talk on a research result, they took that old Central Hardwood Guide framework and started plugging in the results from studies in Allegheny and Northern Hardwood stands in Northwestern Pennsylvania into that framework, a stocking guide, some regeneration assessment techniques, some inventory techniques. And they presented not just a series of, this is what I learned about relative density. This is what I learned about thinning goals. This is what I learned about regeneration stocking. But all of that put together in an integrated structure over time. And I know when they started the training sessions, they thought they'd give you know, a couple of years worth of training sessions at 20 odd folks a shot and they'd get all the foresters on the plateau and they'd be done. But once they started, they realized that it was this great mechanism to really build community, right? They got to know the foresters, the foresters got to know the scientists. They could learn by paying attention to how foresters respond, what was working and what wasn't. If a forester had a new problem and came to a training session, he had a scientist's ear or she had a scientist's ear. Um, and so it was really community building. And it's that, it, Silva, I think, really is both the community and the intellectual framework. And the computer program is, is just a nice outcome. Yeah, and that must have been exciting times during those trainings and kind of getting feedback and, and just that that close collaboration must have been really exciting. Yeah, really. Yeah. I, I don't know if you want me to go there now, but really the high points of my professional career were all these breakthrough moments that happened through collaboration. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think it's, it's really interesting that, that that'll be like a common theme. I think we'll maybe listeners might be able to hear that come through in a couple other things we see here, but I, I, but definitely, I think that's, that's something I've picked up on for sure. Looking at your work. Before we leave Silva though, I just like to touch base on another maybe tool that came out of that. And that's Ned. Is that, 
did that originate through that whole framework, that particular software application? Because um, again, that's something I know that uh, Brad and I utilize and really like. Right. So the kind of geeky level history without getting too deep is that there was this <laughs> period of time in the late 80s, early 90s, when the leadership of the Northern Research Station actually thought that they could herd research cats into doing similar things in different places. And researchers aren't really super receptive to that. But <laughs> um, but the idea was, could there be a more general, we were the Northeastern station at that time, Northeast decision model. And that's what Ned stood for for yeah. a, a while. Um, and it was also during the early days of ecosystem management. So Silva originally had been very, very timber focused. And at the same time, we were trying to expand geographically. There was also this notion, which is part of why those of us who are passionate about relative density think it's so cool. Lots of other things besides timber kind of hang on that. The amount of light getting to regeneration, the aesthetics, can people see through a stand or not, um, wildlife habitat. There are lots of things you can hang your hat on, on relative density, structure and composition. And um, Mark Twery got involved. He was in West Virginia when he started working on this larger framework, and he'd eventually transferred to Burlington, Vermont. But he was wonderful at bringing in these other concepts and disciplines and linking them to stand attributes. And so, and so that was Ned. Yeah, and and maybe you know, kind of to to bring that together. So thinking about Silva, um, you know, they're that really. I, I think they're just super cool, but has there, has, have you gone back or others gone back to see, has it actually improved management in the areas or where people are doing, using Silva, using Ned? Has that, has that been like a, a gain for forestry? Well, you won't be surprised <laughs> to think, to learn that I think so. <laughs> the, the available evidence that I, that I is most accessible is that um, some some of the early work with the regeneration guidelines that were built into early versions of silver definitely showed that if you followed silver guidelines, people were having a really serious proportion of about 50% of their even-aged harvests were failing to replace forest by forest. Hmm. And if they followed silver guidelines for identifying the correct... For, for waiting to do that harvest until they had the right amount of advanced regeneration, they could change the proportion of success to greater than 90. So that's certainly an improvement. But I think it's, and then I think a similar thing happened when Pat Bros came and expanded Silva to be much stronger in the mixed oak type. I think the Pennsylvania Bureau of Forestry and the Ohio DNR both very seriously adopted the silver guidelines for practice in their mixed oak stands and were able to show a real improvement in the proportion of oak in the new cohorts and regenerated stands. So I, I think there's evidence to support improved practice. Well, and I, I know we'll have links in the show notes for everyone who wants to go out because Sometimes, you know, like here in Wisconsin or the Lake States or even other parts of the eastern United States, people may not have seen them, may not have worked with them. 
but but correct. These are free downloads. Anybody Abs- can go out and, absolutely. and start to use these tomorrow if they wanted. So we'll we'll yep. make sure we have that out there. So it's a it's a it's it's out it's out there. Susan, something you mentioned early on that kind of this whole Silva um, approach to this framework came from the field who was having seeing regeneration failures. And I think probably to no surprise to a lot of people, you all quickly identified deer as an aspect. We have that same issue um, for that regeneration. And uh, I just want to touch on a really interesting project that you became involved in around deer. um, And that's the Kinsua Quality Deer Cooperative. And I'm just curious about that. And I'd like to know a little bit more about what that is and what role it played. Well, the research that we did that showed how important overabundance of deer was in making desirable regeneration outcomes difficult was really supported by this community that was growing up around the research and around Silva. And it was a nice balance of we could do the science and the managers could do the politics. But starting in the late 1990s, all of that discussion was beginning to have an impact. And there was a window that was open for really changing deer management policy in Pennsylvania. The window had opened before a couple of times, but, but hunters would get worked up and the window would close. The policy changes would be withdrawn. And so um, we had the good fortune to be in touch with a foundation from Madison, Wisconsin, really, Mm -hmm. the Sand County Foundation, who are very interested in um, helping private landowners see their self-interest in sustainable practices. And this is across farm and forest. But they came to Pennsylvania and they were looking as this window opened, could they create a project where private, and as it turned out, a mix of private and public landowners could cooperate together to use all the tools that the Game Commission was making available in this policy window and and actually measure the response of the forest to the dramatic reductions in the deer herd. And I think they were able to pull together this group in Northwestern Pennsylvania that eventually the Kinsa Quality Deer Cooperative spans 74,000 miles of public and, or not miles, 74,000 acres of public and private forest in the Northeastern corner to the Northeastern corner of the Allegheny National Forest. And I think they were able to pull that collaborative together because we were already working together all the time anyway. Um, and that's partly the Silva community and, and how it, its effects rippled out. So the idea was basically we'd use all these tools, we'd work really hard to engage the people who actually hunted that ground We had banquets every year to tell them what was changing and what was the same. Who got the biggest rack that year? How big was the biggest rack? Who got the biggest doe? And that was new news. Um, And how the deer population was changing and whether we were seeing changes in the forest, were they getting a good trade-off? Were they getting bigger deer? 
Were they getting more sustainable forests and less whiny foresters for their effort <laughs> in, in harvesting? And Sand County Foundation said they thought if they supported us for a while, we would eventually want to support it ourselves. We would see it as so valuable. And so what the foresters were doing was it, putting their harvests in clusters that would create lots of good deer food, lots of habitat, as the, they actually brought the deer, down, deer density down from 30 to 14 or 15 per square mile within the first two or three years by really intensively using all this, these tools. And so foresters didn't have to fence their regeneration harvests anymore. So there was that was also a, a mobility ease for hunters. They didn't have to walk around or climb over fences. And so, and we could also bring these data, the, the private landowners especially could bring these data to the policymakers every single year. And so that time the window didn't close. The policy changes, they've had some backtracking intermittently, but they really stuck with it. And and so honestly, the forests all across Pennsylvania are healthier because we brought these data, this evidence, the support from landowners to the table to show that forests really we, it honestly took longer and occurred in a different sequence. We thought seedlings would be first and wildflowers second. And it turned out that the wildflowers responded more quickly than the seedlings did. Hmm. The other awesome thing that happened is that Sand County's theory was right. After a decade, they said, it was, it was a great run. We paid for your uh, coordinator for a decade. We paid for some research data to be gathered. But if you think this is worth it, you've got to keep it going yourself. And so to this day, and actually quite possibly today, the leadership team gets together every year and they say, yeah, we'll pay 33 cents an acre to support research and have a coordinator to keep us all in line. And it's still going strong. Wow. And the forests are better. Yeah. And how did, how, how did you, what did you have to change for forest management or silviculture a, as a part of that? Well, there was a real push to get the percent of early successional habitat across that 74,000 acres up to 10 to 15%. Um, and we were able to show that, that that really made a difference and people didn't have to use fences anymore and the deer really were bigger, but the big the big change in silviculture was not that the silviculture itself had to be different, but that by concentrating it in a certain area and really quite unexpectedly, although we expected the response to early successional habitat, Alex Royo did some work that was partly on KQDC and partly in the surrounding landscape later where he, he uh, had a, a fenced acre and an unfenced acre in the middle of a shelter wood cut, and he measured the amount of different kinds of habitat in the surrounding square mile. And he did confirm that the 10 to 15% early successional was really good for regeneration outcomes. But he also showed that those square miles that had 20% or more of pole timber, so that's like the worst, not much deer food there at all, 
And in those, the starting conditions were markedly worse because the habitat average kind of across that square mile had gone down so much because there was so much. So, so you really have to, the whole sustainable forestry thing, right? You really have to move your age class distribution along through all the stages of stand development. So some people are pretty finicky about saying silviculture is only at the stand level, but but I think these concepts of where you place silviculture on the landscape are also part of silviculture. And those were maybe the, the biggest lessons that, that we got from the KQDC. Yeah. So just so I have this straight, because I think that's really interesting. Not only did you look at having a threshold of a certain percentage, 10 to 15% of early successional to get that forage for deer, but you said it was important to concentrate that, or did I not get that right? I probably said that in a way that led to an incorrect understanding. It was it was me. <laughs> No, I'm pretty sure it was me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you have a certain amount, you know, a budget to do a certain amount of harvest Mm -hmm. in a given time, and you have a certain amount of property to do it on, if you disperse those habitat, those harvests that are going to lead to early successional habitat, just completely. If you're if the land area you're working with is really large and you disperse them all over that land area, then they're not going to have as much benefit for reducing deer impact as they would have. Now, by I'm talking I'm talking about really large landowners now. This is not something a private landowner could adapt, you know, when when a national forest, for example, or a state forest is doing a a really large compartment, they may want this time through to create most of the early successional habitat on the eastern end because it'll it'll have more of an effect on deer impact than if they spread it across the whole landscape. And then when they come back in 10 or 15 years, they can concentrate it someplace else. Because mm-hmm. each each regeneration harvest will benefit from the others if they're in not violating the, you know, the USDA, the Forest Service has this, they have to have us, trees have to have reached a certain height before they can put in another clear cut kind of thing. And you don't have to, it's not that concentrated. It's not create a thousand acre clear cut, but it's put them in the same neighborhood this time and then come back and put them in the next neighborhood the next Mm -hmm. time. But I think that concept of that high background forage being able to sustain maybe regeneration, even with more deer in that area, given arrangements and stuff like that is really, it's kind of impressive and good for us to think about. Right. Right. You know? and, and I forgot to mention to you, Susan, uh, when in doubt, it's always Greg. So, so you don't have to take, you don't have to take responsibility for any of that. Fair, when in doubt. Fair, fair enough. Fair I enough. might hold on to that one. <laughs> So I think this kind of brings us then to maybe, you know, that there's that if if people have been paying attention, our listeners at home have been paying attention, there's this kind of theme of collaboration that's really run through your career. And and I was just just thinking about as you were talking about it, you know, just that 
it's, it's kind of fun to think about like the butterfly effect, right? Like just people getting together early on and, and have mutual trust and respect and conversation can have really big impacts over a long period of time. And so collaboration has, has, has been, it's important, but, but to you, why is uh, collaboration important, uh, especially in silviculture? In my mind, the mechanics are another kind of trade-off. We all learn kind of the same basic stuff at forestry school, but then scientists are maybe a little bit more likely to stay up to date with the literature or to be in touch with a colleague who has a new idea. So they they may be in charge of maintaining the framework and making sure that the, the intellectual structure is open to new ideas and brings new ideas in when they're relevant. But, but forester or researchers, by the very nature of the particularity of the research that they're doing, are not going to walk anywhere near as many acres as a practicing forester does in a given year. And because foresters are walking those hundreds of acres every year, they're going to see patterns or, uh, well, patterns is what they're going to see that scientists, they're, they're looking too close. And foresters, in a way, have a, a broader view. And so they're going to see things that they may recognize as a pattern, but not necessarily have the tools to say, so I see this pattern, but what does it mean? What's causing it? How should my management change in response to it? And it's that collaboration when the foresters bring the patterns to the table and the scientists kind of put the pieces together that magical, honestly, magical things happen that, that accelerate the development of science and practice in partnership because they're sharing this broad perspective of the field forester with the detail orientation and, and structure that the scientists bring to the mix. Some of the examples I like to talk about is that is the example of sugar maple decline in Northwestern Pennsylvania and, and really ultimately across New England, all the way across New England. So in the late 80s and early 90s, just in general, people were noticing sugar maple, which had been on the landscape for hundreds of years, was looking eh, not that good. Um, and and we wanted to understand why. And there were some hypotheses. This was the height of the acid rain era. Was it acid rain? But that's a big deal to pin that down to acid rain, right? Where, where do you even start the research to do that? I mean, there was a lot of research going on, but and there was also a lot of skepticism that it might be, might or might not be acid rain. So Steve Horsley, who was one of my colleagues at the lab, had this idea that he he actually brought scientists from New England and Ohio. That was when Bob Long first came to the lab and uh, Scott Bailey from New England came. And Steve put together a tour for a whole week to look at sugar maple health on the plateau. And how did he put together a tour? He went out to the forest managers whom we've learned to respect most over the years and said, I want to put together a tour where we all look at some really healthy sugar maple and some really unhealthy sugar maple and see if together 
we can figure out some hypotheses that we could test by future research to get this problem solved. And <clears throat> I think the managers already were observing among themselves that the best, the worst sugar maple was in the highest landscape positions on the plateau top and the best seemed to be in lower landscape positions. So there was maybe a moisture hypothesis, but by putting together this week long tour and we had a, we had a bus, we went around together, spent the whole day together, had dinner together, got together in the evening and talked about what we'd seen. It was you know, if you're a forester, other people could think spending a whole week with just, but it was awesome. It was fabulous. And what we began to realize was the note that others maybe had not picked up, but was that the high-low thing was much more pronounced on the unglaciated part of our landscape and on the glaciated portion of the landscape, you were much more likely to find healthy sugar maple and some of it maybe in even in relatively high landscape positions. Yeah. And so that really turned us from a moisture hypothesis to a nutrient hypothesis because the unglaciated area had had a lot of nutrients worn off the plateau tops over time. And the deeper layers were letting nutrients out in subsoil water to fertilize the lower landscape positions. And they went on to design this really cool study that they eventually expanded to New England, where they actually proved that hypothesis. But that week together with the practicing foresters and the scientists matching their gifts was just Awesome. I think that, yeah, I think that uh, that really rings true to me and has rings true throughout my career. I think there's so much field experience that we could tap into. And like you said, foresters cover a lot of miles, so they see those patterns. They're also setting up timber sales, which you could argue is almost an experiment in itself every time you do it but they don't repeat things. They don't have the time to like break it down in detail to see what are, as you said, the specific reasons why something's happening. So that just makes perfect sense to me of working uh, applied research and joining the forces of the scientists with uh, the practicing managers. And yeah. I know we have good examples of that in other avenues, but I think that's really developed over time. And I think with your efforts in the East, that's really uh, growing over time. Yeah. And, and Susan, I was, for those, I, I know a lot of people listening to this would have probably attended the Northern Hardwood Conference, but you gave a really good talk that, that basically outlined the idea for um, uh, adaptive management cooperatives that basically is this, right? This is a way to carry this work forward and expand on this for lots of different reasons and for foresters in lots of different places. So maybe briefly, what are adaptive management cooperatives? So I want to give a shout out to Mike Walters and the people in the, um, I'm, I forget what PERM stands for, but there's a wonderful 
experiment going on in Michigan right now, looking at uneven and even age silviculture and regeneration outcomes that, that kind of is another model for what we're talking about. But what I mean by adaptive management cooperatives is that my interest in it came from the idea that change in this century may really happen too fast with invasive species and climate change and other forces affecting our forests for us to do even a collaborative traditional research model. Um, and so if we could build these partnerships between scientists and managers who would observe how the forest is responding and how it's changing and exchange ideas in a structured framework and then say, here are the what, what I want most from my management. Here are the regeneration outcomes I want. Here are the health of residual stand outcomes I want from partial cuts. Whatever the most important practices are, identify outcomes that can be affordably measured across the landscape without the normal research, super careful that every single treatment is exactly, exactly the same, but, but design a protocol where landowners and land managers could measure these outcome variables and then the hypothesized correlated variables, and we could use the big data, big research tools that are coming online to figure out which management practice is yielding the best, the most complete set of desired outcomes, and where we're failing, you know, if it turns out that, for example, the rel most people are actually getting the wrong relative density, and so they're not getting the establishment of a new cohort with the mix of species they'd like to have. Well, that's something you could learn from this big data monitoring that's that's controlled and shared collaboratively. And then people could change the residual density that they were leaving and their harvest would come out better. Or if it turned out that some species was failing and, and the pattern was that it was worse where there'd been more wind disturbance or something like that. Those patterns would emerge not just from the observations, but from rigorous shared measurements brought together and analyzed together in a big data framework. And what I love about that idea is it kind of says, foresters, researchers, you're all important. You're all a part of the solution, which, which I don't, sometimes we don't hear that, but I think that's really important. Well, I do. I do, too. I mean, that's that's my life lesson from working in northwestern Pennsylvania is that we do our best when we do it together. Yeah. Wow. Greg, I think we're now getting our if, if we get our um, Silvacast tattoo, we've got a new thing. It'll say uh, <laughs> we do our best when we do it together. Uh, that, that's um, that's really good okay. advice. You go first, Brad. No. Um Susan, just so you know, you, you have at least two members of the Susan Stout fan club uh, here at Silvacast. So we really appreciate you coming on the show today because this has been fascinating. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, thank you very much. 
I have had such a wonderful time thinking about this opportunity in advance and talking with you guys today. It's been perfect, really. Yeah. So I, I thank you for this gift of this time. Thanks again, Susan. Yep. And take thank care. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. And last season, you sent us your ideas about what you'd like to see on Silvacast, and we listened. Upcoming episodes this season are based on your feedback. But note, we always want more feedback, so keep the questions, tips, and ideas coming. And Greg, we, we have something huge in the works, right? Huge. Huge. It's enormous. Oh, it's and what be, is it? It's humongous. Well, we can't say yet, oh. but it's it's huge and it's coming. So everybody get ready. It's going to be big. <laughs> can't wait. It's big. Speaking of changes, let's not end the show with a setup for the booth to ridicule us as usual. How about an inspirational quote instead? Something uplifting, life-affirming. Okay, how about uh, okay? How about this one? It's from one of my favorites, George Carlin. The day after tomorrow is the third day of the rest of your life. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not exactly what I had in mind. Okay, okay. How about uh, this one? Is from one of my favorites, Stephen Wright. He says, "If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is definitely not for you." <laughs> oh my goodness! Maybe the booth is right. All right. All right. We'll, we'll try this again next time. In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvercast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so please keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our Silvercast team. Haley Freider, our awesome producer. Noah LeMade, our IT master. Theme music by Paul Freider. And of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. 